Welcome to Christian Medical and Dental Association's Chapel. We trust this message will encourage your walk with the Lord. Well, this morning I want to look at the word if. Small word with great significance and when it's used. And I want to look specifically how it's used in Scripture and even more specifically how it's used in the concept of doing the will of God. So last time I was with you, we talked about knowing the will of God. I want to talk about doing the will of God today. We started last time by pointing out from Psalms 19 that God has given us His will and statutes and laws and precepts and commandments and judgment. And there in that passage, Psalmist David tells us that those things are more valuable than gold. They're sweeter than honey. And they are used to warn us of the dangers of life and that by heeding them, we will be rewarded. So the point is, Scripture provides the basis for knowing the will of God. And I explained it to you as if it's a script, a drama, a play. And we have a script that's given to us. And all the important aspects of life are covered by that script. And God invites us to take part as actors in that script, in that drama, in that play. And we could title that Redemption, Making All Things New. And for our roles to go well, we need to know and follow that script. You might remember I pointed out the time when David and I were looking at some adjacent property here. Uh, we told it might be available to extend CMDA's property line. So we went walking, but actually while we were walking, we were talking more about a problem we were dealing with, and we weren't paying attention. We got into the middle of the woods, and I said, David, which way do you think is back to the office? He said, well, that way. And I said, well, I, I think it's this way. But I brought a map of the, of the property, and I brought a compass. And by taking the map out and orienting it with a compass, we knew exactly where we were and how to get found. And that's what God gives us in life. The two primary means by which we know God's will is that map, which is the Scripture, and that compass, which is the Holy Spirit, that orients that Scripture to our place in life. And that's how we can know God's will. So many times I have counseled myself... <laughs> And students and residents and graduate members in CMDA who come, they say, well, I want to know God's will for this specific decision in my life. And after talking for a little bit, it's clear that many of them aren't following God's will as revealed in Scripture for their life. They either don't know it, they ignore it, don't believe in it, they don't trust the character of God to follow it. And, but yet they want to know the answer to a specific question. It's not going to work that way, as we'll see. So I left you with this comment that knowing God's will is not enough. And I left you to think about this. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a wonderful passage from Romans chapter 8. But the word if there implies that it might not be that God is for us. Now God always loves us, always extends grace and mercy and wants to bring us back into fellowship with Him. Always. But when we are not doing His will... We can be outside of his favor, outside of his grace, outside of his provision for our life. So I want to look at that as a possibility in our lives today. But let me outline the problem by sharing with you this survey that was done. It first was done in Willow Creek Church in, in Chicago, a large mega church up there. And once they saw the results, they were a bit surprised. And they said, well, let's, let's extend this survey to a larger number of Christians and see if it holds water outside of our church. So they surveyed 500 churches and 150,000 Christians. 
and asked them a series of questions. And based on the original survey, they expanded the questions. So what percent of Christians feel that they are in the place of fellowship and favor with God? The questions were asked in that kind of bent. What, where do you think you are? Are you, are you where God wants you to be? Interestingly, only about 1 in 10 Christians felt they were. And that means that 9 out of 10 Christians did not feel they were in the place of fellowship and favor with God. And they broke that out further with questions about, well, why is that the case? Is it because the church programs are weak or inadequate? Was the teaching not appropriate? That wasn't the salute. That wasn't the reason. The reason those Christians said that they weren't where they wanted to be, where they should be in their walk of faith, is because they had lack of trust and obedience in God. Sort of interesting, isn't it? Let's take a history lesson. We got uh, Easter coming up in about a month, and of course, coinciding with Easter is the Jewish um, celebration of Passover. And Passover celebrates the Exodus from slavery in Egypt. And that exodus is a metaphor for us today of salvation, of deliverance from sin, deliverance from the slavery of sin in our lives. Well, it was deliverance for Egypt for them. And then God had a destination. He just didn't want to take them out of Egypt. He wanted to get them to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. Now, Canaan, don't be confused, it's not a metaphor for heaven. It was the place on earth where God wanted them to be so that he could bless them and use them as a light to the world of what he had planned in his project for redemption of all mankind. It's the place where we can get God's favor and God's blessing. That's Canaan. To get to Canaan, they had to journey through the wilderness. See, they had been apart from God for hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt, had not been connected with God, had not had the, the, the teaching, uh, the, uh, the religious teaching they should have. So they had to learn in that wilderness journey to trust the character of God, to learn what his word was, to receive his word and learn it and learn to rely on the power of God. Now this map, our friend Stan Key, who unfortunately has had to back out of speaking at our national convention this year, and Bert's going to step in for him. But Stan Key calls this the University of the Desert, going through the desert and what we need to learn. Now I don't know if you can see this on the thing, but... This is a probable route for the journey of the children of Israel from Egypt to Canaan. They started up here in Goshen, followed down through the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai where they received the covenant and the Ten Commandments. And they journeyed then all the way up here to this place right here called Kadesh Barnea. That probably took them about 18 months, certainly less than two years to get that far. And they were on the south border of Canaan, their promised land. That's where they sent the 12 spies in, and 10 spies came back with a negative report saying, we don't, God's told us to take the land, but we don't think we can. Failing to trust and obey. So what happened? Because of their lack of trust and their lack of obedience, they were left wandering in the desert, and the rest of this journey took 38 years before they got there. Wandering in the desert. We actually have this story recounted to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where it says they were all baptized. They saw the glory of God and the cloud of his glory and they all went through the sea and were delivered through the sea. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. The manifestation of God there was a Christophany, a 
appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, if you go back and read those encounters with God and think of it's Christ, he'll give you a new revelation of that story. So Christ was with them. But because of disobedience, it says that 23,000 fell in one day. It says there were bodies scattered in the desert because of their distrust and their disobedience of God. And Paul writes there that that was an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And it goes on to say, take heed lest we fall. That lesson is for us to see the consequences of failing to trust and obey. We have that same obligation in our lives. As we go through being delivered from sin and getting to the place where God has us to be, we have to learn to trust and obey. Now, Jesus tells us that our Canaan land is called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, used interchangeably. He taught that that kingdom is where we find God's acceptance, his favor, his peace, his provision, his direction in our life. We find abundant life now, and we find eternal life. That's our Canaan. That's our promised land. Here on earth, we can have that place, be at that place where we have God's favor and our blessings in our life. So... That's true as long as we learn from that wilderness journey to trust and obey. And there are conditions to be met. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines if as on condition that. That's what if means. And then it defines condition as a premise upon which the fulfillment of an agreement depends. Something essential to the appearance or occurrence of something else is a condition. It has to happen for this to be met. Now... I'm going to hit this real briefly because I don't want to get bogged down in this for our sake of our time. But in the Greek has four words that get translated in modern English Bibles all as the word if. Now, in general reading, you probably don't need to know the distinction there. But if you're ever really trying to understand one passage that's got if in it more clearly, you can go and see what that Greek word is. The difference is whether the Greek if means it's presumed, assumed to be true, assumed to be false, assumed to be plausible, or assumed to be unlikely. Sort of interesting distinctions there. If you're doing a word study on a prescription verse, you might want to look at that. But there are other ways of describing conditions. We're going to look at if. If is used over 1,600 times in Scripture, about 600 times in New Testament, depending on the translation. Paul uses it at least 160 times, and in all of his letters, it's used multiple times. Paul is the persona, the expert in, in deductive reasoning. And deductive reasoning follows that if this is true, then this is true, then this is true. And he uses commonly the if-then literary technique. Basically, when we fulfill the ifs, then God fulfills the thens. You see that in Paul's writings in many places. So scripture reveals conditions, ifs, necessary for us to find a right relationship with God, for us to have a right relationship with others, for us to have abundant life, and for us to have eternal life. If, if. Since it's so important, we need to pay attention to the ifs in scripture. Now we're not going to look at all 600 in the New Testament, but I want to look at a few. Let's start with this one from Colossians chapter 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him 
if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now I'm going to have to take a little detour here, and hope it's not troubling to any of you, but we need to look at a controversy because this word if can raise that controversy again in our minds. Controversy goes back 500 years in this whole controversy about eternal security. Can you lose your salvation? We have, we have doctrinal differences on this in the church today. It goes back to John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius, uh, a German and a Dutch theologian. And they debated this heavily 500 years ago. We're still debating it today. And there were five main points that they actually debated, but the particular one on security is their preservation. Does God guarantee that if you are saved, you cannot fall from grace? Or can you fall from grace? I'm not going to get into the elements of that, but I'll give you my opinion. My opinion is I don't know. Okay? But I do have an opinion, and that is our salvation does not depend on your point of view on this. We'll know in the by and by, and that'll be soon enough for me. I like to think about it. I like to read about it. I've heard very persuasive arguments coming from both camps. Okay? But throughout life, what's important for us is to main our, maintain our confession of faith. I don't plan to change my confession of faith, but I know it's not ultimately up to me. It's only by the power of God. I don't feel insecure in my faith, and I hope you don't either. But it's important that every point in time in our life that we maintain that confession of faith. Because even if once saved, always saved, that doesn't mean once professed, always protected. And that's what I want to talk about, these ifs. And very importantly, this debate and other similar debates should never disunite us. We need unity in the body of Christ. Sadly, we have so many divisions over these kind of things. And I think God must just shake his head and say, children, you need to get along. It's not a good witness to the world when you don't. Let's go back to the ifs. I love this if. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... You shall be saved. Romans chapter 10. Let's look at that a little bit. Here's the if then. If you, one, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him to the dead, then you'll be saved. Let me just point out the fact, though. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, what do you say to the Lord and King of your life when he tells you to do something? When he tells you what his will is? Do you say, well, I'll think about it? Well, no, I don't think so. What do you say to a king who gives you a command? If you confess he's Lord, then you say, yes, Lord. That's the only proper response. Yes, Lord. Paul was concerned about this. He wrote in several places his concern about his work being in vain and the people's confession being in vain. I'm not going to go all through all those, but here's one example in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Let's look at this a little more carefully because I don't want you and me, brothers and sisters, here at CMDA to have our confession being in vain. It says that we heard the gospel and we received it and it by which we stand righteous before God. And it's also the gospel by which we are being saved if we hold fast. We have an obligation there, a condition that needs to be met. We need to hold fast. We know God's not going to let go. We don't want to either. 
we need to hold fast. Hebrews 3, For if we come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul exhorts the Corinthian church to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He goes on to say, see if Christ is in you. We need to constantly be doing that. Otherwise, you fail to meet the test. He says in 1 Corinthians 11 that when we're taking the Lord's Supper, we need to examine ourselves to see if there's some sin with us that God needs to deal with in our lives. We have, we have to be careful of the danger of having an unexamined life. We need to have a life that's examined against our original confession of faith to see if it's enduring and still active in our lives. In Romans 8, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I highlighted deeds there because it reflects back on this concept of doing God's will. The deeds that we do should reflect the will of God in our life. In Matthew 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. How heavy is that? You're carrying a grudge? You're carrying some bitterness around? Be careful. That's not the will of God for you. And it's not healthy for you. Clearly, our horizontal relationship with others is predicate on our vertical relationship with God. John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You are my friends if you keep my commandments. And what are his commandments except his revealed will for our life? Doing the will of the Father is important to have that love relationship and to have that friendship relationship with God. 2 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, brothers, if be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What qualities? Well, Paul outlines them there in chapter 1. He says we're to have faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. These are God's will for us. We examine ourselves and see how we measure against these qualities. These are the qualities we need to maintain in our life to be doing the will of God. And then we have in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this is often used as an evangelistic outreach passage, but it was in reality given to the church. In Revelation 3, it's spoken to the church, to you and me. God wants to have fellowship with us. Jesus wants to be part and enter our life and have communion and fellowship with us. And we have to decide, is our door open to that or closed to that? It's the will of God that we have that communion. And Jesus stands ready to enter in and have that communion with us. In Jesus' mountain message, we often call it the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, again, that vertical relationship is predicated on our horizontal relationship. And Jesus teaches us much about the will of God. He says to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile, to love your enemy, to pray for those who persecute you, let your light shine and forgive as you have been forgiven. And then his parting words before his ascension. Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples to all nations, baptizing in them in the name of the Father and the, Holy, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
clearly. He's got a will for us, and we're to teach that to others. And behold, I'm with you always to the end. We don't have a possibility of doing this apart from him being with us and making it possible in our lives. Now, we've had looked at all these things that are conditions that we're expected to do, and it can get a little, make our minds spin, all these commandments. Well, the Jews had 613 commandments they had to keep in order to be pleasing to God. Well, Jesus sort of made it simple for us. He made it very simple. At the Last Supper, he said, I have a new commandment to you. It's a commandment that overshadowed all the others. It's a commandment that when we keep it properly, all the others will be kept de facto as a result of. If we keep this commandment that you love one another, that wasn't the new commandment. The new part of this was that just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And the just as I have loved you was about to be demonstrated within a few hours in a most remarkable way. Him hanging on a cross sacrificially for us. We love others sacrificially. Jesus made it simple. It's not easy, but he made it simple for us to understand. So, let's take a moment for you to take the survey. How's your walk of faith? Is God for you? Then who can be against you? Is God for you because you are in walking in his favor and in fellowship and in obedience and a trusting relationship with him? Are you at that place where you enjoy the fellowship and favor with God? One out of ten Christians say they are and nine out of ten say they're not. How tragic is that? Jesus put this whole message in context as he finished that mountain message. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them you remember the passage. He says it's like doing the will of God it means building your house on a rock. Failing to do the will of God means building your house on a rock. Storms are coming. That's a promise as any other promise from Jesus. He says in this world you're going to have trouble. You're going to have storms. So the question is where do you build your house? You build your house on the rock when we're found doing the will of God. Hearing the words knowing that's, that's the knowing part, and then does them, as Jesus says, that's doing his will. That's where we get our strength. That's where we get our stability in life. That's where we can weather the storms and also find that abundant life that God wants for us. Where's your house built? We can always start over and rebuild it on the rock. Jesus, his words, his teaching, and then being obedient to them. Word amen used in scripture can be translated different ways, but one of the common ways of understanding the word amen is it means so be it. So be it. I want to close with my own prayer of surrender and trust and obedience. And as I pray that prayer, if you, if it resonates with you, and this is your prayer also, at the end of it, would you say amen with me? So be it for your own life. Father, I just want to thank you that you've made provision for us to know your will. And Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, it can be revealed to us and then we can accomplish it as we just yield our wills to you to let you work within us. Father, I do that again today, right now, is one to surrender my life 
to trust you more, to obey you more, to let my life be used by you, to bring glory to you, to bring the knowledge of Christ to others. That's my desire, Father. I know I can't do it. I know I've failed, and I need your forgiveness for that. And I know you will forgive me. But Lord, I want to be placed on a path of righteousness for your name's sake. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, Amen.